0: So uh, a week and a half ago, my wife and I were actually in the nation of uh, UAE, the United Arab Emirates, in the city of Dubai, a very global hub, very, uh, you know, amazing city in many ways, and we were attending a conference for our larger movement of churches that we're a part of called Antioch, and this was called the Team Leader Gathering, so all the lead pastors from U.S. churches, as you saw John Lowe, that's when I took that video, I was with John and um, the team leaders from all of our overseas teams. There's about 38 U.S. churches in our movement, and there's about 80-plus teams uh, in the nations. And so it was a pretty large group of people. And the leader of our movement was actually the only one at this conference, which was, which was different than normal, who gave a message during that. There was a number of different sermons. I think he gave one a day over the three days that we had kind of large group meetings. And it was a little surprising, uh, the messages that he gave. He didn't give a, a, really an update on kind of what's the state of the union in terms of our movement and where are new teams happening and what are some testimonies from the field of things that are God, God was doing. He really honed in on one, one topic in all three of his, of his talks. And it was really about how do we be an apostolic people? Now, it's kind of a funny Bible word for just saying, how do we live as a people who are saying, hey, it is our calling to see God's kingdom advance on this earth? It's our calling to see God's love penetrate more and more all over and see more and more people come to know Jesus. That we're not satisfied with what's here. We're not living in retreat and saying, okay, well, hopefully, you know, the world's going to pot, so, you know, whatever. We're just going to retreat and love Jesus by ourselves. We're saying, no. God is calling his people to advance, to see more and more lives transformed, set free by the truth of God's word and the presence of his spirit. What does that really look like? And that's the question I want to ask us today, actually. What does it look like, and I would argue, to really actually just live as a Christian? Because the whole church is really called to that same mission of seeing all people in every nation get a chance to put their faith in Jesus and to see the kingdom of God and his righteousness come to bear in this world. What does that look like? In our, in our little lives where we're, just, we're going to jobs, we're you know, working with women that are coming out of domestic abuse, whatever our, our day-to-day lives are, what does it look like to really just live as a Christian? And here's what we're going to find today. In the book of James, the Christian life is a consecrated life. When you call yourself a Christian and you put your faith in Jesus, it is a life that is now given to God. It is a life that is set apart and your life is no longer your own, but it's devoted to to God and His purposes in this world and His purposes for you. The Christian life is a consecrated life. Now, this is our last week in the book of James. Next week we start Advent, and we're going to be looking at a really awesome theme through the scripture. But this is our last week in James. We're going to begin chapter five this week. And James is written by the brother of Jesus. A better translation would have been Jacob, but whoever translated it into English the first time called it James, and so that's kind of what we call him now. Okay, but really that's kind of a better translation would have been Jacob. And this book is kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's wisdom for living. It's a bunch of little kind of somewhat connected thoughts from James, all about just how do we live life well. He borrows a ton. You might hear some Things even in your mind today as you hear the scripture read, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, he takes a ton of stuff from that. And there's a number of places today where he's either quoting or just kind of mentioning similar teachings of Jesus. And he's kind of using the book of Proverbs and pulling these things together to write this book. And he's addressing it to kind of people scattered all over. So it's not just like many of Paul's letters, that it's just a one church in one city or a number of churches in a few cities in an area. This is just kind of, hey, to to all the Jews kind of, Followers of Jesus scattered everywhere. This is his Jesus' brother. I'm giving you the word. Okay? So one thing, I wasn't going to mention this again, but someone came to me today and said, uh, Mark Fee was just saying, hey, man, that Bible Project website is awesome. I looked at the, the, the video on the book of James. It was so helpful and just really visual. So I would just encourage you, if you're wanting to know like, more about the Bible and help understanding and reading the Bible, right? it's a 2,000-plus-year-old book, Oftentimes the context is difficult to get a hold of. Uh, I would just commend to you the Bible Project. There's like you know, five to eight minute videos that talk about you know, each book of the Bible and help you really get a grasp on what's happening. So I'm just going to toss it out there again. Check that website out. It's helped me out a lot. All right, James chapter five. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. It'll also be up on the screen behind me. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Okay, we're starting with a heavy. Let's break the ice a little bit. Why don't you turn someone near you or consider for yourself these two questions. Ready, go. Want to read it again? You can turn in your Bible. Take a look. It's a great English teacher question here, right? Can you summarize this in one sentence? There you go. See if you can get it at the heart. Okay, one more minute. Okay, so now you can compare your notes to mine, all right? Again, I've already given away my answer. This is what I see. The Christian life is a consecrated life. And in this first paragraph of this chapter, we see James saying it's a, it's a consecrated life. It's a life that is set apart from the selfish desires of our hearts and the self-indulgent culture that many of us find ourselves in. It's a life of saying, hey, this is my life. I am setting it apart from those things. I'm saying I could live my life for myself. I could just do whatever I want all the time. I could just make my life all about just making myself feel comfortable. But I'm choosing not to do that. I'm, I'm consecrating myself to God. And that is just the way of a Christian. It's not a super Christian. It's not an apostle. It's not a pastor. It's just a Christian. The Christian life is a consecrated life. It is a life that is set apart and devoted to God, away from just a life pleasing the self. Now, a little bit of uh, just discussion to help understand this passage. There's debate about who is James talking to here, because as we get into the rest of the chapter, and if you go back and read the rest of the book, you'll find out it seems like the people he's talking to are not really wealthy people. And so most commentators, or at least I should say, you know, it seems likely that what, who he's actually kind of doing a rhetorical deal here where he's addressing people that are actually oppressing his readers. And he's doing that in kind of a, it's kind of a funny technique because what he's doing is he's saying, hey, anyone out there that is wealthy, right? be warned that you're not using that wealth just to feed your own self and in, and in turn are oppressing people. Your greed isn't leading you to oppressing others. But even if, it's, it's, so there's like a piece of encouragement in that for his readers to say, hey, God sees what people are doing. That those that are Christians that are, that are being oppressed by other people, that are wealthy, God sees that. He's not unaware of what's going on in your circumstance. But also, if they ever find themselves in a place of power, it's a warning to them as well. So the message, you know, for us, right, is, The world is often chasing after many of these things that it's describing, right? It's talking about gold, right? Wealth, clothing, right? But it's saying all of that is coming to nil. And the other piece that's that's tricky here is it's talking about the last days or the coming of Jesus. There's obviously lots of debate about this if you've spent any time in the church. Personally, I think this is probably talking about the judgment of A.D. 70, and so uh, those that were oppressing Christians before that happened, when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem and burned the temple, uh, they were the main people that were oppressing the Christians. And obviously you hit Nero right, up in, right, right before that in like 68 AD, I believe, is when Nero starts oppressing the Christians uh, all over the empire. But the point is he's saying, hey, you're in these last days. You know, hold on, right? These people that have wealth and power that you have sacrificed to say yes to Jesus, you know, you haven't burned incest to Caesar. You haven't, you know, you haven't given in to the demands of the Jewish authorities all over. James is saying, hey, listen, right, all of that power and wealth that they've got is not really going to save them, right? Now, for many of us, when I read this, I instantly think it's talking to me. Because you, if, if, if you have an awareness of the state of America in comparison to the rest of the world, we are all wealthy people. We have much more influence and uh, ability to use our money to do things than most other people in the world. And that's the question for us today. Is, am I living a consecrated life? Now, maybe some of you are in the position of where these early Christians were where you feel like you don't have a lot of power and there's people that are over you that are, that are controlling your life in different ways. The message to you today is, hey, God is not unaware. And God is coming, right? And he will judge every person according to what they've done. For many of us, though, and for myself, this is usually speaking to me in sense, Lord, how am I living a self-indulgent lifestyle that is not concerned about the needs of other people. And This is in small ways and big ways. So Black Friday was this past couple days ago. I did not pick this passage to be read right before Black Friday. Okay, I'm not like trying to manipulate or anything here. But as I think about my own life, I find myself, as Christmas comes every year, thinking about what gifts I would like to receive. That is the main thing that occupies my mind. And that is a place for me to repent. It just reveals what my life is about. It's about me. Right? My life is about me. It's about having my needs met. There's so many ways that we do this. Right? What do we spend most of our time thinking about? How are we using our resources? Are they focused on ourselves? The leader of our movement, and he might have taken this from somebody else, I don't know, but he says, the call of a Christian is to live simply so others may simply live. And the Christian life is a consecrated life. It's devoted to seeing, first of all, God glorified. The name of Jesus made great and honored. It's devoted to a life reflecting the glory of God, living the life that Jesus lived. Loving others, even your enemies. It's devoted to seeing the lost of the world being found by the great shepherd. And it's a life that is devoted to the injustices of the world being made right. Guys, as followers of Jesus, we do not have time to live a life that is self-indulgent. There are people all around us who are desperate for the life of God, whether they know it or not. There's injustice all around us. This is not to say that we're not to enjoy what God has given us. In another part of the Bible, it obviously says God has richly blessed us with all things to enjoy. There's a place for beauty, and there's a place for uh, celebration, and there's a place of enjoyment. But all of that falls underneath the life of a Christian that says, I will not live a life that is self-indulgent because I'm living a life for the sake of God and for other people. My parents told me this story when I was a kid of a, a family that they knew, I believe when they were living out in Denver. And this family was the owner of a business. <clears throat> I can't remember as a kid what, what they made or what they were doing, but they made a commitment <clears throat> that they would give away 90% of the business profit and keep 10% as their salary. So from what I understood, this was a very successful business, and they lived a very normal life <clears throat> to the extent that the wife she would save money. She was saving money up in this one year to buy a new dishwasher because the old one was just, you know, not cleaning the dishes very well and, you know, you know how the dishwashers get old, whatever. And so she's putting money away every month when, you know, they could have just had, you know, a glorious house and new stuff, everything. They decided their life was, was dedicated to God in this way. And a need arose in the church and she decided to give all that money that she had been saving away to someone that was in need And she'd start again the next year saving that money. That is a life of consecration. You're saying, I am not just doing what the world does. My life is looking different. And the mission of God and the glory of God are more important than me having everything that I want. Guys, the key here is just, it's not about if you're going to give away all your money or, you know, move to some foreign land. The key is an attitudinal shift. It's saying, Jesus, my life is yours. My life is yours. My life is yours. My life is consecrated to you. You have saved me, and I give you my life. I am willing to live a life that looks different from the world which just says, indulge yourself in every way possible. This can even affect, be, be affected to the place of how you eat. And I'm looking at some of you in the congregation who live a lifestyle in this way. <clears throat> Years ago, we had a woman named Joanne Hiley come and speak to our discipleship school. And Joanne's a counselor and also does inner healing ministry in New York City. And she's been doing it for a long time. And now she's in her 80s and she's still going. And I was late to that meeting uh, I, had a, I think it was student-teacher student conferences that night, so I had to go late, and I came in late, and all I heard was she was talking about sweet potatoes. <laughs> that was what I got out of it. But her point was, you know, I am 80-something years old, and I am still on mission with Jesus. And I am in good health, because you know what? I have said no to sugar, and I eat a sweet potato every day. That's a life dedicated to God. To say, you know what God, I want to live a long time so that I can have more, do more damage to the kingdom of darkness and lead more people to Jesus. And so I'm going to eat sweet potatoes to make that happen. Okay, there you go. Right? That decision is a life dedicated to God. I am saying I will not indulge myself for the purpose of Jesus. Alright? Alright, next paragraph. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. This is verse 7. Until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Okay, you got one minute this time. Go. What sticks out to you? Is there anything that really shot out from you or... How could you summarize this? What's the main point here? Get at the heart of it. Okay, now we can compare notes. I'm not going to ask you to share today, but you can just say, hmm, do I think Brian's right about what he's saying or me? Hey, I thought the same thing, okay? Here's what I see. I already gave my answer away. The Christian life is a consecrated life, right? It is a life devoted to God with a commitment, a commitment to sacrifice and a readiness to suffer. That's the mark of a Christian. And 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 it's infused with patience, Right, this patient endurance in the face of suffering, a consecrated life it requires patience now i 've mentioned a book I read recently a, a number of times. It had a big impact on me, but this, this word "patience" was a core value of the early church. There was actually more uh, kind of treatises written on that value than on anything else. at least this one Arthur, author argues that I read that I read recently um, and obviously. Because many of the Christians were suffering in that time. And it's the first descriptor of the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. What's the first positive thing that it says, right, is love is patient. Isn't that so interesting? I think patience gets a bad rap oftentimes. You just say, okay, that just means you're waiting and you're not going to get mad quickly. Going to wait in the car if you're picking somebody up, like you're just being patient. It's way bigger than that, right? Right? Patience is a surrender to God's will. It's accepting what God has for you. right? In the sense of being patient with God. right? It's doing what God has said, even if it hurts. Because patience is not willing to take matters into its own hands. It's giving judgment... To God. When someone wrongs you, patience says, I'm going to let God handle that. Patience is a commitment to doing the right thing and letting God handle the rest. You say, Lord, I will follow you no matter what happens, I'm going to do the right thing. Warren Buffett, famous investor, I think fourth wealthiest person in the world. You guys heard this quote? The stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. Okay, and his, and this, I don't, I'm not a big, don't come to me with for financial advice, especially in the stock market. But I would just say his investment philosophy, from what I understand, is to, is to invest in undervalued companies and then to wait until the market corrects itself and they they come up to their true value. And he just says, that takes time, and most people don't have the patience that it takes to see that happen. That is a trust, right? His trust is in that the market is going to eventually regulate the true value of something. So if you're able to find something, right, that's undervalued, He's saying he's putting his trust that eventually the market will make the true value come to the surface. Because the same thing is true for us. Patience, sacrifice, right, suffering, enduring that requires a fundamental trust in God. It's a trust in God's goodness. The story of Job that was mentioned, right, in this passage what's his story? Job's a great guy. God starts bragging about him when the devil's up there in heaven, you know, hanging around, I guess. I didn't think he liked it up there too much, but he was visiting that day. And God says, have you noticed Job, Satan, right? There's no one like him. He serves me, right? He he does what's right, takes care of the poor, all these things. And the devil says, well, he only does that because you've you've blessed him. And so God allows kind of whatever protection was there to be removed. The devil comes, takes away all his wealth, and all his kids die, and then he's covered with boils. I mean, I'm summarizing. I mean, I'm condensing the story here a little bit, okay? You understand, okay? And what does Job refuse to do? He refuses to curse God. He refuses to say that God is evil. Now, there's a lot of, and the whole rest of the book is all Job's dialogue with God and then his dialogue with his friends. So there's a lot of, hey, God, I'm wrestling with you in this. But he doesn't curse God. He has a trust eventually at the end where he just says, you know what, God, I trust you. He never sees the picture of what's going on in heaven, that there's this cosmic deal going on just around this one guy's life. But there's a fundamental trust in the goodness of God that allows someone to endure suffering. And that, guys, that's just simply what it means to be a Christian. It's someone that has said, God, my life is yours and I trust you. But I am not Going to do what is evil, I will choose what is right. And the temptation, as James is saying, is when hard times come, right, is to do two things. To turn on other people, as he talks about grumbling or complaining, to envy what they've got or how God has blessed them. Or the temptation is to start to try to manipulate God. This whole thing about letting your yes be your yes and your no, your no, is most likely, referencing taking oaths, or saying, "Okay, God, well, if I do this, I'm going to take this oath, and then you'll you'll do this, and I can get out of this situation." And Jesus is saying, "Guys, let it go. Let it go. Do what's right. Do what's right. Commit yourself to God. Let Him deal with the rest." A Christian life is a consecrated life. All right, last paragraph here, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should turn, sorry, should wander from the truth, and someone turns, gosh. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should turn, should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Okay, you got one minute again. Get to the heart of it. Ready? All right, I'm going to jump back in. You already know my answer. The Christian life is a consecrated life. It is a life devoted to God. It is a life of devotion. It is a life of prayer. James gives these three conditions in the beginning. Hey, are any of you in trouble? What do you do? Pray. Are you happy? Well, give God the praise, right? Communicate and connect to God with that. Recognize that it's a gift from him. As we saw earlier in the book, every... Every gift is from God. Is anyone sick? What do you do? Get people together and pray for you. Especially he's referencing the leaders of the church. Christian life is a consecrated life. It is a life lived of connection to God. It's a life of prayer. He gives the example of Elijah. He's saying, look, here's a person that's an example to you. Look at how he prayed and boom, the rain stopped for three and a half years. God's judgment on a nation that had turned away from him, trying to bring them back. And he prays again. It rains. He's not telling us that to exalt Elijah. He's telling us to say, you can pray too, and God will move. Did you hear the confidence in, in his statement? The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Man, that's a bold statement. I feel like I've prayed in faith before and that sick person has not gotten well. So what do we do with that, right? Especially in the, in the sense of like physical healing. We just keep praying and we believe the word. The Bible says if you're sick, get people around you and pray for you. And this is my sense. I'm not saying that this is what this, is what this passage is saying. But it feels like the sense of this is communal. Right? We're not blaming the person that is getting prayed for. Well, you didn't have enough faith, so that's why you didn't get healed. You know, come back later when you have more faith. Jesus never did that. Right? We're never doing that. And if it's on anybody, it's on the people that are doing the praying. And in some sense, it's on the people of God. And this is not a guilt or shame thing. This is just saying, hey, guys, as we move forward together in living a consecrated life, The Lord will fill us with faith that moves a mountain, with faith that destroys cancer in someone's body. We need each other in this to bolster each other's faith. There is a sense in the kingdom of God where we move forward together as we all commit ourselves to the mission of God and give our lives to him, that heaven comes to earth and invades people's bodies. All right, I need an amen on that. Is that good? We can move forward his kingdom as we move together. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Bible said that. I didn't say it. So we need to keep praying and say, Lord, I guess I didn't have enough faith. I'm going to come back and I'm going to try again. And we're all going to bolster each other up until we all have more faith and we're seeing breakthrough in more people's lives. And it's not just for sickness. It's for so many things. Now, just so we don't get this wrong, right, it's not about us earning something. We are are resting on the work of Jesus and the cross. And so God has said that we are the body of Christ. We are his body. Does Jesus' body have power? Yes, because it's Jesus' body. Our faith is not in us. Our faith is in Jesus. Our faith is in he being Lord. And we look at a situation and we believe in the power of God. And we know that, the, 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 oh Lord, help me, that Jesus really does have power and he really is here. That cannot be stopped. It's not us mustering up enough of it. It's just a deeper place of saying, Jesus is Lord. This affliction is weak and I am part of the body of Jesus. I have been drawn into his life and I have power and I've been commanded to heal the sick. Amongst praying for other things. The message that struck me most while we were in Dubai was uh, the leader of our movement, Jimmy, was talking about what he called apostolic intercession. And that is, he kind of said, Hey, there's this first level of prayer where we're just praying for those everyday things. We're, we're praying for our friends, we're praying for our spouse, we pray for our kids. You know, we pray for maybe some coworkers, we pray for our, our parents, just those everyday things. We're always lifting these things up to God, right? Just day in and day out, we're praying for these things. And then he kind of was talking about the second level of prayer, where he's saying, hey, that kind of prayer that Paul talks about is, you know, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God and the peace of God, uh, which passes all understanding, and will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And there's a with thankfulness in there that I, sorry, I left that part out. And he said, that's kind of a second level of when we, when we feel kind of the fear rise up in us, we start to feel anxious that we, we rise up in the second place and we start to just pray to God until we see that breakthrough in our own lives and we're able to move past anxiety and fear. But then he was, he was using this funny uh, hand illustration like this. But up and to the right, he was saying this third place of apostolic intercession where, where you as a person or you as a people are interceding for breakthrough. In areas of life or in people's lives, until you see it happen, that is the people of prayer that we and the church are called to be. That we keep knocking until God answers. And gosh, I, I, I'm sorry if I had known this, maybe I would have started with something a little bit simpler than the foster care system being totally like you know. i mean, I'm not, sorry. I'm just. I'm just. As I was thinking about this, I was like, okay, let's start with something small, right? We threw a big one up there, just as our, and we said, we're going to keep praying to this until we see it happen, right? But guys, we are the body of Christ. We have access into the throne room of God. And when we're praying for God's will, we know that he is going to move. And we say, you know what? I am not going to give up. The world needs Jesus, and I am going to pray to see his kingdom come. Is anyone else feeling a pull from the Holy Spirit to say, God, make me an intercessor in this world. No, then I will intercede. I will intercede. Lord Jesus, make me an intercessor. Let people come to know you, Jesus. Fill these hearts in this room with your Holy Spirit that we would not rest until everything is made right in this world. Lord, this is a holy moment for the people of God to say it is you that has to move God That we are weak and you are strong. Lord, we need your power in this time. There are so many in this world that do not know you, even our own neighbors. God, I'm just saying, do it, Lord. Would you raise up in our church? Would we be a people of intercession? Would you raise us up, God? Help us, Lord. Put it in our hearts. Let's have the band come back up. Lord help this is the response today if any of you is sick what does the Bible say get prayer I want you to come over to this corner and people are going to come up and pray for you that's it it didn't say anything it didn't qualify it if you have a cough okay if you don't come up I I, I saw I heard some of you coughing before the service if any of you sick, because it gives glory to Jesus. It gives Jesus an opportunity to be Lord in your life, right? It gives him an opportunity to show his power. Some of you, my sense is just, you need to, you need to just get before God and say, God, have I given you my life? Is there an area that I've been holding back from you? Now I would just say, come over here on this side and just get before God. Let's have the prayer team come up. And so for some of you, maybe you just need to dialogue with somebody about that as well. But guys, the Christian life is a consecrated life. It is given over to someone else. It's given over to God. It is not our own. Lord, woe to me if I live a self-indulgent life. I just repent, Lord. So let's respond to God. A Christian life is a consecrated life. How is God calling you to to give your life to him today? If you're sick, come over here. If you want to deal with the Lord, come up here or go see some of our prayer people and we'll sing this song and then we'll close.